0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. My name is Fabiana Corsi-Mendez and I am joined by my co-hosts, Zach Wheeler and Amanda Yuen. Since the death of George Floyd, the United States has witnessed the awakening of a national conversation on racial justice and equity, especially within our institutions. The January 2020 Government Accountability Office report on diversity in the Department of State found troubling patterns. For example, Racial or ethnic minorities in the department's civil service were 4% to 29% less likely to be promoted than their white co-workers with similar levels of education, occupation, or years of federal service. The report concluded that the department must reflect on, quote, longstanding issues that may contribute to barriers to equal opportunity in the Foreign Service. Joining us today to discuss is Ambassador Gina abercrombie winstanley Stanley.
1: Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Win Stanley was a United States diplomat for 30 years and was the longest-serving U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Malta. Through a series of senior positions that included advising the Commander of U.S. Cyber Forces on our foreign policy priorities, acting as the Deputy Coordinator for Counterterrorism, and coordinating the largest evacuation of American citizens from a war zone since World War II, her professional life has played out almost daily in international media. She has been a longtime advocate for diversity in the State Department and recently testified in front of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs on why an inclusive State Department would strengthen U.S. foreign policy.
2: Ambassador Wynne Stanley, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. All right.
0: Thank you so much, Ambassador. So to start us off. Uh, We'd like to begin by discussing the findings of the January 2020 Government Accountability Office report on diversity in the State Department. What were the overall findings of the report and what findings were most troubling to you?
3: The overall findings in this looked at an 18-year period, I believe from 2002 or maybe 16-year period, 2002 to 2018. Uh, were that, in short, we have been uh, coming at this issue recognizing that America's representatives need to represent all of America, that in spite of all of the talk that we have done in the last 18 and indeed the last 30 years, we have made uh, insufficient progress, very little progress, embarrassing progress. One of those three will cover it, I'm sure. that which I found most troubling was not only the slow progress we've made in almost all categories, but in fact that we have gone backwards into very significant uh, categories. And, I'll, and both of them affect me personally, but they affect the organization as a whole and indeed the caliber. Of thinking of policy making of policy implementation that comes out of the United States and if you don't have the right people in the room helping to make the decisions helping to make the policy you're not going to get the best policy out so troubling the fact that there are fewer African Americans uh, in the Foreign Service um, and in the Civil Service in the Department of State and that there are fewer women and Um, By this time, since we've been working on women in the Department of State, since at least the mid to late 70s, we should be at 51% of the Department of State. So the fact that we are less than that is failure, in my view.
1: So understanding that these problems of diversity, equity, and inclusion exist at the State Department, what do you think is the root and source of these issues? And why has the State Department, despite all its talk, not been able to uh, reach a more equitable and diverse environment?
3: There's not going to be one answer, because if there were, obviously we, we would have solved it because people would all be pointing at the same thing. I believe there are a range of challenges that smart people, and the Department of State is full of smart people, can overcome once we have truly decided we are going to do so. I think we've hit that moment in America. So this is a very hopeful time. Uh, That said, it is, as I observed to other audiences, part of it is the culture of the building, that we have a very... A narrow way of viewing what makes a good diplomat, what makes a good representative. And we have a very high standard of excellence. And people are concerned that if you change that narrow view, that you might have an impact on that high standard of excellence. And what I think we are going to have to internalize, not just say we understand, but internalize is that the definition of excellence is what's being broadened. And it's being broadened in a way that, frankly, will increase our ability to get after really good solutions to problems. Because when the definition of excellence for diplomats was made and, and internalized in this building, in the Department of State, it didn't include people who looked like me. It didn't include women. It simply did not include us. And it was a very comfortable place for those who were included, and people are are unwilling to give up their space, and it is a failure of imagination. There's no other way of describing it, that this is not a zero-sum game. This is going to really lift all of us and help us do a better job. And I feel certain that many of my colleagues who are European-Americans, who are male, understand it, but haven't had to do anything about it because the department hasn't hasn't asked it of us, hasn't demanded it of us. And when the department wants something out of its employees, it's in black and white in our evaluation forms.
1: Have there been any programs that the State Department has done um, that have been successful in terms of like increasing diversity, increasing the types of voices that are at the table, um, and like how have or have they not succeeded um, and gotten us to where we are now?
3: The answer to that question is yes and no. Uh, yes, there are programs that are put into place and they for a while will work. For instance, we have these incredible fellowship programs, wrangell and Pickering, Um, that have brought really extraordinary officers into the Department of State. But then that, that resentment, that resistance that comes from others who feel like their space, their prerogatives, their privilege is being endangered, find a way of Of tainting the programs and and this is a frank conversation that needs to happen so I'm not going to sugarcoat this taint the program so if we had for instance a Mustang program which was designed to bring in specialists and often was used by women to overcome some of the barriers that were put there in the past then people said oh they came in through the Mustang program, they couldn't pass the written exam, they couldn't pass the regular way, so they had to come in a backdoor or sneaky way or some other kind of way. And any other way of coming into the department has been given that taint. So whether it's the Mustang program, whether it's one of the fellowship programs, people kind of look down their noses at it or or sniff at it a little bit, completely without validity a lot of times out of ignorance, and the department itself can help fix that if it will. And so there are ways of addressing that. Again, people simply have to decide it's time to take care of this problem. I'm sure that the department will.
1: Yeah, going off of that, um, in your testimony, you talked a lot about um, the idea of gatekeepers and the importance of building a pipeline of, young diverse talent um and making sure that these people are not looked down upon even if they come in through specialized programs Um, and can you talk a little bit about this developing a pipeline of leadership for women or minorities or also the idea of how those that are in leadership in um, the department tend to be as you said predominantly white and male
3: Mm. the the pipeline is in place So that's the good news. The problem is much less recruitment than it is retention. And unless we have clear avenues of pathways to the top for everyone, and there have been a number of officers who have recently spoken out about this because we've made clear now Silence is no longer the way. When I was a young diplomat, whatever struggles, and this does not you know, whether you're male, female, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter. We were expected to put our noses to the grindstone and just fight our way through. The cream would rise, et cetera, et cetera. Well, uh, some of the cream rose, and some of not-so-creamy rose, and some, we lost some extraordinary people who simply do not, did not, do not, Have the patience to wait out the mediocrity who were well-connected and therefore made it to the top. You you can find other things to do that will soothe your soul and allow you to be, be a servant, be a public servant, because that's what we've come in to do in a different way. So, retention is one of the main barriers of changing those numbers at the Department of State. We bring people in at the bottom, but we don't keep them because they're not getting the same access to mentorship. The people who are in charge of them, who are supervising them understand very clearly that there is no value placed on their ability to ensure that these people succeed in the department, that the department in fact does not care if we lose these people. That is the reality. So that's why I call for accountability and intentionality. We have got to figure out a way, and again very smart people, it can be done, to put in our evaluations that we are building an organization that requires leadership, that requires good management. And for both of those things to be true, you have got to bring everybody along, which means you're going to have to make extra effort to ensure those who might otherwise not feel welcomed and not feel valued, we've got to fix that. And that's why we lose so many. It's why we lose women. It's why we lose underrepresented populations.
2: Ambassador Winstanley, you t- uh, you touched on this earlier um, when you said that if you don't have the right people in the room, you won't be able to make the right policies. But I was wondering if you could expand upon that a bit. Like, what really is it about diversity that is so important for the State Department? Like, why is it important for us to have diversity in order to create better policy?
3: Well, we've already figured out that one person is, is can't make all decisions. So one person cannot think of everything. So if you've got a group of people addressing a problem you're going to have different options different ways of approaching it and if you've got the same people with similar backgrounds then the approaches are not going to be as expansive as creative than if you have a mixed group of people thinking about problems and solutions. And it's been proven time and again, and the private sector in some cases do this very well, of bringing people who don't think the same way to approach a problem. And we spark off of each other. You know, someone will say something that... I haven't thought of, I haven't looked at it in this way, that will allow us to bring different approaches. That's one way that it's important. The second way is we are dealing with a diverse world, for goodness sakes. And the fact that I I found success as a diplomat, as a negotiator, being able to walk into a room often being unexpected, but being able to walk into a room. And I know as a woman and as a minority what it feels like not to be the powerful one in the room. That's what every other nation feels like if they have to sit down and negotiate with the United States of America. We're the 8,000-pound gorilla. We have the... The ability often to impose our views, our positions, our desires, our priorities on others who don't always love that. So my ability to understand those sensitivities, that, that, that irritation, knowing that I've got to figure out another way of getting what I need out of the negotiation, I believe gives me an extra Edge and extra insight into how to carry on and carry out a successful negotiation. Bringing, you know, having a, a point of discussion, those interpersonal interactions and connections can be very, very important. Establishing connections before you go into a negotiation. And again, the experiences, not only of where have you traveled, what languages do you speak, what experiences have you had all of those things can help you make connections with people around the world which means we got to bring our full resources we can't just have one group of people leading it it doesn't it's just not going to work anymore
2: ambassador so in this regard do you think that in the past the state department has has been able to successfully function or do you think it's failed in the past because of its lack of diversity
3: i think that the department has always attracted really smart, dedicated people, always. And, and I believe will continue to do so. We figured out we need to have all of our resources. So we started accepting minorities and, and women. Um, but as I said, reluctance within the building has prevented us from using all of our resources to the best of their ability. So the department has failed itself. Um, and failed its employees by not supporting everyone equally. I would say that we have had failures in our foreign policy, and obviously we can look at our foreign policy and we can look at the world and we can look at our national security and you know, success is not screaming at us from around the world. So obviously there's space for improvement. That goes without saying. I believe we can do better and that we will do better when we bring all of our assets to bear. So what I will say, one, you know, the failures are out there for historians to write about and for all of us to see, I will say that there is room for improvement. And I believe that we are at a particular time now in America where we're going to see that through.
0: So ambassador, In your testimony, you talked a lot about changing a culture of indifference to one that actively values diversity and inclusion. So can you describe for us what you meant by a culture of indifference?
3: As I said earlier, as a supervisor, as a manager of people, I know what the department values. I know that if I can save the U.S. taxpayer money it's going to go in my evaluation and it's going to help me get promoted. I know if I've mastered one, two, or three languages and can communicate with my host nation interlocutors that it's going to help me get promoted. I know that if I'm able to take care of uh, visitors, you know, members of Congress or members from the department or the administration and set up good meetings with my host nation, interlocutors, it's going to help me get promoted. What I also know is that if I do mentorship with my young officers, if I help uh, underrepresented populations or women understand the system of the Department of State, how things get done, how you navigate or manage your career, how you ensure that your um, abilities are recognized, those sorts of things that help people get comfortable in the organization, succeed within the organization, and rise to the top. If I help underrepresented populations, minorities, navigate those successfully. It's not valued. There's no place in my evaluation that I can put that in, that I help get X, Y, and Z promoted, help them navigate the system to get a good assignment that really showcased their abilities, et cetera, et cetera, that I brought a wide range of backgrounds to the table that really helped me get good decision-making. Those things will not get me promoted. So why will I care about them? Why will I care about them? There has been a time we have what's called an EEO award, which is a legal term, but often is used for diversity and inclusion. It's not what it really means, but that's what it's sort of kind of come to mean. There have been times, and that award is worth $5,000. Now, unless you're very wealthy, that's not something to shake a stick at. And there have been years where no one has even competed for that award. People have been willing to leave $5,000 on the table, an award that would go into their personnel file, which should help them get promoted, but they understand that the department doesn't value that. So they don't even compete for it. They don't even compete for it. And if that doesn't tell you there is a culture of indifference, I don't know what would.
0: And I know that you discussed your experience being a supervisor and with that culture of indifference, but if you're comfortable, could you expand on? you know, any other personal experience with these issues in the Foreign Service?
3: Hmm. Well, everyone has experiences. And as I talk to um, not only young people, but, but certainly those who are interested in a career in diplomacy, and as much as I am critiquing the Department of State, I do so because I know it can do better, that I am a lover of the building and what Americans can do as part of the culture. I just know it needs to expand, but I know we can do better. And I will say to anyone, wherever you are in your career, starting off or in the midst of it, failure, unfair treatment, Is going to happen to each and every one of us all of us are going to get screwed at some point in our careers and what I tell people what I ask of you is to think now how will you deal with it how will you rise above how will you retrieve yourself retrieve your career if you determine that's really what you want to do so All of us, I don't want to say that it's because I'm a woman or that I'm an African-American because I have colleagues who are European-American and male, and they too have had stumbles and failures in the course of their career, but it is harder to retrieve yourself if you are a woman. It is harder to retrieve your career if you are a minority. I am saying that minorities and women do not get the same benefit of the doubt. They do not get, have the same expectation of success or being able to resume a steady path upward as a European-American male. Not that we can't do it, but it's not as easy, and the expectation of success is less. Which is an additional burden. So, I, you know, I won't. Uh, lots of things, whether as a woman or as 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 a minority, I would say my challenges. Had been directly related to my lack of knowledge of how the system worked. Because once I figured it out during periods of my career, I was able to keep going. I was able to rise up. I was able to retreat. I've been fired twice uh, during the course of my State Department career. And so although I have succeeded, I've had a wonderful career helped by so many of my mentors, sponsors, colleagues, european-american because most of them were and african-american and hispanic and asian across the board it was when i learned the system when someone schooled me when someone gave me additional information and i asked questions those were the times that i was able to retrieve myself so everyone's going to have stories to tell what do you do with it when you stumble how do you manage it
2: ambassador Winstanley, stanley you've you've touched upon this already in the podcast Um, in terms of changing the attitude of indifference in the State Department and um, changing the attitude of of State Department um, employees towards those who have gotten in through programs um, created to increase diversity, but what other next steps would you recommend for either those in the State Department or those in Congress or whomever to kind of continue advancing the agenda of increasing diversity in the State Department?
3: Well, one of the challenges within the Department of State, and it's not going to be an easy one to overcome, really is our assignments process. And and to some extent, the willingness of the president to have political appointees in positions uh, of leadership that normally would be held by career diplomats, and and so it's not going to be easy to resolve that because our service, unlike many around the world, treats diplomacy as a plum job that is worth buying. Quite frankly, I mean, political donations, political support, account for a lot of that. Many of the political appointees are well qualified, they come from backgrounds that allow them to do a great job, but many are not. Uh, And so how you hold on to positions for people who have been slogging their way, learning the craft of diplomacy, learning uh, regional expertise and specializing that that conflict between those two tranches of leadership within the building is going to have to be navigated and managed i don't have a quick answer for that but also our personnel system our assignment system the promotion system is clear and i think there are a few ways that that can be helped um, partially from who's on the promotion panels and partly on ensuring a wider array of people understand what those promotion panels are looking for in your evaluations. So that's a matter of sharing information. Our assignments process is deliberately opaque. It's deliberately opaque so that favorites can be rewarded. You need a rabbi. You need a sponsor. You need someone to champion you, to get you in a particular assignment. And and the building colludes in that opacity so that we can hide things from political appointees, I think, from some points of view, or that we can take care of our tribe. That's the way it works. And women and minorities are often not part of the tribe. So until we shine a light on that, until there is not only intentionality about what the department intends to do with regard to making it open and supportive of everyone, is shining a light on and accountability. If you have a list of 25 people for a deputy chief of mission job or an ambassador job, and one name or two names on that list are underrepresented populations, someone has to ask a question why. And we also have to make clear, because Secretary Tillerson made a statement that in. I, I'm going to say, broke my heart, enraged me, some combination of the two, when he made the statement of, "We're going to make sure that there are minority names on every list for an ambassadorship," and I thought this man has not taken the time to understand the organization that he's leading, because what he announced was going to happen is something that had happened long ago. So he didn't even know that when he made the statement, I assume. So it's not enough to have a name or two on the list because then you say, oh, well, we had two names, and you can ignore those names and choose who you want, who the sponsor uh, on the committee that makes these decisions. So the light has to be shined on the deputies committee that makes the decisions about who gets to be put forward as ambassador, who gets to be put forward, um, you know, a deputy assistant secretary or other senior positions, deputy chief of mission. Mission positions. We've got to have accountability for the decisions that come out, and there needs to be somebody within the department, in my view, that has responsibility of saying, "Oh, I see your bureau has come out, and you've got, you know, X number of office directors and deputy assistant secretaries and deputy chiefs of mission and uh, ambassadors, and maybe deputy directors, and we see this list does not look like America." does not reflect the full range of talent that is in this building, you're gonna have to go back. This won't do, this won't do. And that takes accountability, not only for those who are making those decisions, but for those who are to hold them accountable. And it needs to be in the evaluation. That needs to be part of how we judge who is considered to be successful within the Department of State.
2: Ambassador Winstanley, Winston- in terms of accountability, is there any way that students or you know just normal citizens like like um, like Amanda, Fabi, and I can can do to increase that accountability that you just talked about? Like, who who do I go to or who do I write to? What do I do in order to advocate?
3: Well, the Hill is very uh, serious about this issue again because they have helped the department. We hate we. The department hates when outsiders have to get in our business, their business. You can see I'm still there in my head. But um, the Hill has been very helpful to help the department hold themselves accountable. So writing to congressmen and and certainly There are discussions, lots of them now in Washington, about this issue. And and logging in and asking questions is really, really important to show that America cares. Again, we are not going to let this moment in time pass us by yet again. We are not going to let it happen. The number of ambassadors who is an ambassador who represents this nation, it's public information. Even the Department of State, I'm sure, puts it out on a website somewhere. We have our State Department magazine that has photographs of ambassadors who've been nominated for positions. And it was one of the ways that I tracked it. And when I was uh, making a push to say, there's something wrong with the way this looks, how I prepared my discussions with leadership at the time was take two years of the State Department magazine, flip to the back page where they have photographs and just invisible, the Canadians call it visible minorities, just looking at the photographs and see that of the last two years, only four women of color became ambassador. And that included political appointees and career ambassadors. So it's not secret information, any of us can ask. Any of us can pursue it, as I said, either through, through letters to the editor, questions sent to Congress, all of those ways to let public servants within the Department of State and in the administration and on Capitol Hill know the American people care about this sort of thing. And certainly, Twitter, you can tweet at the Department of State, you know, at Department of State, what's this who's this you know when there was a photograph that came out of the advisory committee to secretary pompeo and people on twitter were like i can't believe this because the photograph was very very homogeneous and the department looks at tweets they sometimes respond to people so the government is more accessible these days than it has been ever before And I noticed that you're talking a lot
0: about the moment. So, you know, do you believe that recent attention on issues of racial justice sparked a lot by protests over the death of George Floyd? Do you think that will accelerate discussions or change within the State Department?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Those parts of the State Department and those who support the Department of State who are unwilling to engage In this moment to look hard at themselves, look hard at ourselves, America, and be part of the solution will, I have no doubt, be left behind. I have no doubt. There is no way an organization that is intending to prepare itself for and be part of the future of America, that it cannot, it can ignore this moment and ignore the need to make accommodation accommodation that is to broaden the aperture of what is considered to be excellent considered to be american as far as american culture is concerned the aperture has got to widen because that is the nature of our country and the nature of the future of our country i've looked at some institutions here in my own uh, hometown which are very homogeneous in Um, its management, and their boards, and the audience. And if they want to be around in 50 years, they're going to have to change. And I think most of America understands that. What all of us, those of us who are seized with the moment, what we are going to have to do is make clear to the rest of America that we're in this together. We're not trying to leave anybody behind. But you have got to drop your fear. You have got to drop your fear and open your eyes and your minds and your hearts and step toward the future. It's for all of us. We're not trying to leave anyone behind.
1: Ambassador, a lot of our listeners are students at Hopkins um, or students at SAIS who aspire to have careers in the foreign service and in foreign policy. Um, is there any advice that you would like to give to our minority Um, or female listeners who are interested in these career paths based on your many years of experience and service um, with the State Department?
3: I love that question. My answer is, y'all come. We need you. We need you badly, and we need you to stick it out, and we need you to understand from now on the situation that I mentioned earlier of officers having to keep quiet and slog through no longer obtains, you are expected to speak up, use your voice, become an intrinsic part of the cohort that is going to do better for America and frankly the world, If we do better, I'm certainly the world will do better as well. So I say that, I say that to everyone who is interested in a career in diplomacy. White males, we need you, we need you too, we need everyone. But there is a place for us all, and this moment and going forward, we're going to figure out how to ensure that you feel that, that you feel valued. And if you don't speak up, speak up, but you're needed and you're welcomed. And it's a fabulous career. In all of my ups and downs in the career, I, I, it was, it's a fabulous career. I, I can't think, well, a possible another job this much fun, this rewarding, this exciting, this adventure that was an adventure every single day. Not always a happy one, but always an adventure. And if that's what gets you going every morning, there's no better job. There's no better job. All
2: right, Ambassador. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast and for your literal decades of service to the country, um, you've probably changed a lot of lives. So thank you so much for being here today and it's been a pleasure.
3: It's been my pleasure too. Thank you for having me.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA news and updates. We'll see you next time.